Hello, ladies. Welcome to the Hourly to Exit podcast. I'm your host, Erin Austin. My goal with every episode is to share information and resources to help you achieve the next level of growth in your expertise-based business. We all know generating income from our expertise is pretty easy. The challenge is in scaling and building a business that can run without you. Join me here every week to make sure you are building an asset that can be used to fund your goals and your legacy. Before we get started though, one little disclaimer, because I'm a lawyer. The information I share on the podcast is general in nature and is provided for information purposes only. It is not to be relied upon nor construed as providing legal advice or legal opinions about any specific issue or set of facts. Now, here we go. Oh, I am so thrilled to welcome Rochelle Moulton to the show. Welcome, Rochelle. Thank you, Erin. I'm excited to be here. I don't know which one of us is more excited. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's me. Well, let me first start with a brief bio. Rochelle Moulton turns independent consultants into authorities. The author of The Authority Code, How to Position, Monetize, and Sell Your Expertise, she has been called an emotional red bull, I love that, (laughs) for her balance of inspiration and practical advice. She earned her consulting stripes by leading introverted brainiacs at two powerhouse consulting firms and turning around the failing consulting arm of a Fortune 500 company. She built three professional firms from scratch, including selling one to Arthur Anderson. She co-hosts the Business of Authority, a must-listen to, and is a leading voice in the independent consulting space. Now, my audience knows I'm a huge fan. (laughs) I write about her, I like her, talk about her. And uh, I think, is it fair to call you the authority on authority? You know, it's that it's that modesty piece coming in. I'm certainly an authority about authority. Yeah, let's put it that way. <laughs> I'll, I'll go with my version of that. Like that. <laughs> so there are so many topics we could cover that would be of interest to our listeners who are founders of service-based businesses, you know, determining who your ideal client is, you know, how to choose a niche, monetizing your expertise, as well as Rochelle's authority circle concept, which which I love. And she said that I could pick. (laughs) So (laughs) I have chosen two from her book. One is she calls the revolution you want to lead. And the other is your point of view. And they are related, but they have some nuanced differences that I really love to dig into and about why it's important to articulate them. And, uh, and especially from the point of view of our female audience, you know, money for the sake of money is not why a lot of women start their businesses. There's usually some social and emotional aspects to it as well. And so having that kind of less kind of just bottom line oriented view of our businesses, I think will be interesting to the audience. And, uh, and I will say it was the part of your book that I spent the most time on when I went through it. And so mm. I rather selfishly would love to go through it here with you awesome. as well. So first, I want to just back up and have you explain, like, what is authority versus, say, expertise? You know, it's funny. I used to think authority was basically 
building your expertise in public so that people would hire you or buy your stuff. I mean, that's really how I used it for many years. But it wasn't until I actually until I sold my first business that I realized that building authority is about building value. Mm. And it isn't, I'm not talking about value for yourself. I and mean, we'll get to that in a second, but it's about value for your audience, how you're transforming them in some way. And it allows you to reach, to influence and to impact your ideal people. And when you think about that, it allows you to work with who you want to work with. It allows you to play the way you want to play in your business. It allows you to charge based on value, based on these transformations that you're making in the lives and businesses of the people that you serve. And you you really get to decide who you want to be and to work from your genius zone. So those are all kind of, you know, I slash me centered views of authority. And the flip side is authority is about being the accepted trusted source of whatever your niche of expertise is because we're not an authority on it everything we're an authority in a fairly narrow area and it's it's about value yeah and so do you find that people have some difficulty kind of making that leap from expertise to authority like what is the major resistance or, or obstacle that people have making that leap well, it's funny because I, I, there's a part of me that wants to say there's a difference in genders, but I'm not sure there is. The, the leap is that public stance. Like I can be an expert to my audience of clients. And it, especially if, if I have a business where, you know, I've got three clients or five clients in a given year, I don't have to serve a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand people. I can be an expert and keep my head down and kind of do my work to be an authority you got to stand out. You have to stand up. You have to stand for something, which is where we can get into the discussion of revolution. And you have to publish. And it's really hard to be quiet and keep your head down if you're going to publish, because that's where people are going to interact with your ideas. You're actually going to get better, but every moment is not going to be ideal. There will be times when people disagree with what you've said, where you've created controversy, and that can feel uncomfortable. So it's really, it's that extra step. And I typically see people kind of going from this sort of freelancer mode, kind of gun for hire, to expert, and then not not everybody wants to make the leap to authority, but those are the kinds of things that you really have to do to enter that that territory. Yeah, it is tough to become public with your ideas. I've certainly had a lot of resistance around it and have been kind of transparent that I get anxiety every time I publish or whatever post. Like there's some anxiety there and uh, about, you know, how this be received or, you know, and it took some time for me to get to that place of just kind of feeling the, you know, discomfort and doing it anyway. And that, that is a, that's It a doesn't challenge. practice help. It does. It does. Especially when, yeah. you know, like, wow, nothing terrible happened. It just, you know, we got out there and, and you get some feedback and publishing. I mean, that's a conversation. Like hopefully it's a two-way conversation, right? But it's another way to have conversations with people and get feedback about your ideas. Yes. That can be the scary part, right? Is getting yeah, that yeah, feedback. Well, that, that but, but it's actually, it's it's funny. I used to be really nervous about the, you know, constructive feedback, right? That people were going to be mean. And 
Mostly they aren't. And obviously, the more public you are, the more you can attract certain kinds of trolls. But generally speaking, in the expertise field, we're attracting people that are interested in this. And when they don't agree with us, we can learn things from them. Like sometimes it's just that I'm not phrasing something correctly. Like I thought I was clear about what I was saying and they took it another way. And I'm like, well, if they did, that means other people are too. So I need to get clearer. I need to get crisper. I need to use different metaphors or different examples. So that give and take is hugely helpful, but it's just scary at first. Mm, It is. It is. Well, yes, pushing through. I hopefully everyone will find their voice and, and push through. Hey, everyone. A quick word from our sponsor, Think Beyond IP. Think Beyond IP helps your professional services firm build the essential legal and strategic foundation required to confidently scale your business by developing, protecting, and leveraging intellectual property assets. You can find us at Think beyondip.com. Now, back to the show. So now back to our revolution and point of view. So first, like, why should we start a revolution? And what does that have to do with serving our clients? Okay, so revolution, I mean, there's a lot of words we could substitute for revolution. I picked revolution, I used to call this your big idea. And advertisers and marketers will use that all the time. The reason I started using the word revolution is because I felt like we weren't pushing this hard enough, that so many of us have a mission behind our business that drives us to do this. Because let's face it, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this, you could just take a job. And, you you know, at least for the first couple of years, you might make a lot more money at the job than you would doing this. So why? And so that revolution is about your audience. It's about how they're going to be better after they've worked with you or experienced you or, or bought your stuff, you know, like read your book, for example. How are they going to be different? And when you do that, it makes it so much easier to figure out like who your ideal clients and buyers are, right? Because they're going to be people who ascribe to your worldview about this revolution. And I mean, it's, it's, it allows you to operate on a, on a higher plane than without it. And it, it's interesting because we always think, especially those of us um, like lawyer training, accountant training, you know, all the, all the kind of professional services teach us about logic and analysis. But what happens is when people buy, we buy based on emotion. And so you're going to grab their attention with that emotion you're creating. Now, it has to be real. We're not talking about like fake advertising and stuff like that. We're talking about what's really meaningful to you. What do you care so much about that you are dedicating your business to this transformation? And I do think that there's there's a thing that, that we do in creative services where you push it past the comfort zone. So it's, and you push it too far and then you reel it back. Because it's a lot easier to reel it back than it is to keep pushing yourself when you kind of get comfortable. And so that's what that word revolution, the intent of it is to push you to go past what you think is merely good, merely okay, and push it to a mission. Why are we doing this? How are our people going to be better after they've experienced us? 
Yeah, you know, although I kind of pulled out a couple of concepts, but I guess we you can't really look at it without the kind of the overall kind of view of building authority, which includes, you know, the ideal client, your niche, because that that revolution, right, is about talking to them, both helping you identify them and helping them identify you. And so so in the same way that people may have some fear of niching, uh, do they have a fear of having a revolution or stating a revolution, starting a revolution, having a big idea? Like, will that turn off some of, you know, potential clients? How do, how do they deal with that? Well, yeah, it's a really good question. And I, I've, you know, I've got plenty of stories on either side. Um, there's a lot of people, especially in the services businesses where they're, they have a very strong service idea and they have no trouble grabbing onto this idea of a revolution. Sometimes what they have trouble with is narrowing it to who they actually want to serve. Oh, I want the best design on the planet. Well, the best design for who? Like, who are you actually going to serve? So there's that piece. I think that there is a huge fear for niching. And in fact, when I wrote the book, I kept thinking, which chapter goes first? Do I do niching first or do I do ideal clients and buyers? And I put the clients and buyers first because the question I ask about them is who energizes and inspires you? And when you start with that revolution, so what's the mission that inspires you? And then who are the people that you want to help that, you know, you're excited about serving them because you're going to have tough days. Let's make this about the mark we really want to leave on the planet. And when you get to that, then the niching becomes a little bit easier, right? Because you have your area of expertise. And so then you have to figure out, all right, what is this revolution who are my ideal clients and buyers or clients or buyers, depending on what you're offering? And then how do I actually apply the services, the things that I'm good at to help them get to this revolutionary mm-hmm. state? Yeah. Got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I will confess. I mean, I had kind of this overall revolution, I guess. I'm a little decided this revolution <laughs> for me, yeah. of wealth in the hands of women can change the world. And I struggled a lot with the idea of like, well, am I saying that men ruin the world? But I'm not, but I, I really struggled with that. Like, is that uh, kind of negative, you know, kind of on, on the inverse side? But I think being pro something doesn't make you anti something else. So. <laughs> that I mean, what you just described is the classic challenge of niching. Right. It's interesting because the way you phrased that was, am I being anti? What other people will say is, oh, but that means I can't serve these other people, but they're some of my clients. So it's it's more f- fear-based, right? Yeah. And so I think that's what happens when we take a stand, when we niche. And it's not that we can't still do work for those other people, but they may not come to you because you're focusing your messaging and you're publishing and you're selling and you're marketing on this narrower, narrower cohort. But yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of fear around that. And I, I've experienced it myself. I mean, nobody is immune. Nobody. We all think about it. Yeah. And I will say happily that, uh, you know, um, a man who wanted to uh, transition his business to a, uh, a second in command who was a woman, like kind of was drawn to the message as well. I'm like, oh, I'm good. See? 
There you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's when we choose, whatever it is, when we choose, it's like the universe rises up to help us make that happen. But when we don't choose, we just keep watering down our message. And and those are the people that a lot of times they're really frustrated with how their business is growing because they're looking at it saying, I don't get this. I have degrees from these schools. I have this experience. I have these brand names I've worked with. Why am I not making money? What's not happening? And nine times out of 10 is that they really just haven't positioned themselves. They haven't narrowed their field of service down so people can really see them amongst all the other choices that, that they have. Yeah. Well, I'm making, yeah. So when we talk about, I mean, when you spoke about authority and you said that it was how your audience would be different or better after working with you and the part of that, and then the revolution, I mean, is that also kind of part of their transformation? Like if they join you that, this revolution will apply to them as well and to, you know, whatever. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And so, for example, um, you know, one of my call to arms for many years has been be unforgettable. And that's not about me. It's about them. It's about being unforgettable. And there's more to that, but that's a big idea, a, a revolution, being unforgettable by being who you are and serving the people that you most want to serve. So it's not about, for example, be unforgettable, like be famous, right? It's not about being a celebrity. It's about service. So yeah, in, in some cases, people will say, well, my revolution is my tagline. And sometimes it is. Uh, sometimes it is. Um, I worked with uh, a client who's uh, her line is uh, was save kids from drowning. I mean, you don't get more. I mean, that's a huge revolution. And it's also she really used it as a tagline. I don't think of it as classic marketing because there's no double speak in there. It's this is what we're doing. We're banding together to save kids from drowning. So we're looking for kind of the business equivalent of that. And I think sometimes we think, well, we can't have too much mission in with the business. Bull. We absolutely want it. That's part of the different the differentiator. It's it's how people see what you care about in a way that's not about you, but that's about them. Mm -hmm. All right. Now I know that there's generally kind of uh, you know consumers want to identify with the businesses that they do business with. You know, so you know, boycotting if they don't like, if you're still doing business in Russia or whatever. Mm -hmm, and exactly. has that been kind of, you know, needing to have a revolution, needing to have a point of view, is that kind of just been part of the way, like that, is that, as that's happening among the, in the expertise space, expertise space, has that been evolving kind of the same way that it's been evolving in the consumer kind of product space, space, or has this always been the case? Well, I, you know, I was nodding because yes, it has been evolving. I'm just thinking, has it evolved faster or slower than the consumer space? Um, I'm not sure, but I, I know throughout my career, I felt it um, to a lesser extent earlier and to a greater extent now. Um, but I think part of it is that most of us that are listening to this, we're running very small businesses. We're running in terms of people, right? We're not running 50,000 person businesses. We've got a person or a handful of people or maybe 10 or 20. Um, so it's a different kind of an exercise to be noticed 
and you don't necessarily have big budgets to play with. What you do is you make your mark by the belief system that you subscribe to and that you live out. You know, this you can't say one thing and do another, no matter your size, and, and last very long. It's got to be consistent. Right, um, right. So as we kind of make the transition to point of view, tell me the difference between the two and why we need both revolution and a point of view. Okay, so the revolution or the big idea is where you want to take your audience, right? It's the end state. When everything is nirvana, that's the end state, okay? Point of view is it's not exactly how you're going to get there, but it's your belief system on how you're going to get there. So let's just take a, like a really simple example. Let's say your revolution was about, I'm going to show you how to make a ton of money in your business. Okay. So that's, that's the end goal. Yeah, it doesn't have a big mission feel for me, but let's just say that's it. So the point of view says, how are you going to get there? So I might say like my newest definition of, of wealth is it's, it's the individual definition of money, time, and flexibility. Like the balance of those three is like kind of how I'm thinking about wealth. So I could have a point of view that says, yeah, I'm going to get you to a lot of money, but let's explain what that means. So I'm not going to say you're not going to be like the hustle guy who's going to work 100 hours a week to get there. I'm going to be about how we balance these three things. That could be a plank in someone's point of view. Another one could be and this overlaps a little bit with who your ideal clients are, but it, part of that point of view is how you speak to your client. So if your clients are Fortune 500 VPs of HR, right? So you might talk about what you believe about the role of employees in organizations. Do you believe that they need to have a top-down structure? Do you believe that there should be leadership opportunities for all different kinds of people? Or another way to say it, if you're working on creating your own, is I believe dot, dot, dot. And then you start to really get into the core points of your belief system. And I don't want to make this sound like this is like a five-minute exercise, a lot of times when you've been in an organization a long time and then you're hanging out your shingle, you're, you're going to learn what your point of view is by making some mistakes and by having some triumphs. And you're going you're gonna to maybe serve one particular audience and go, oh my goodness, I don't want to serve them. Never again. And you, so you, you pivot a little bit, maybe a little bit, maybe a lot. And so it's, there's a process. But that point of view is what makes you special. It's what makes you unique. So that if you and I, Aaron, let's say we're both attorneys. We both have Harvard Law degrees. We both came out of big law. What makes us different? It's our belief system. It's how we're going to get there. Even if our revolution is very similar, we might have very different belief systems about how to get there. You might say, oh, it's, it's, you've got to build a firm. You've got to have a lot of employees. You have to do this. And I might be saying, no, 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 no. You got to be solo. Who wants to have the employee thing? No, we want to be solo. That's why I kept saying, you know, I'm an authority. Because we could be side by side and we could both be authorities. On that topic, we just have different audiences because we have a different belief system. Got it. Okay. 
All right. And so when you mentioned that, you know, it's not just a one and done type of thing. I remember when I, I posted about working on this exercise and someone said they've been working on theirs for 10 years. <laughs> They're still working on it. I'm like, well, yep. good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I <laughs> yep. I'm not so far behind. <laughs> It's, it's funny because in the years that I did a lot of strategy, like brand strategy for experts and authorities, I was surprised that nobody ever had one. Like, I mean, they had an idea in their head. I mean, because they would talk to me and I could write one from what they told me, but they'd never written it down. And what happened was that they never really thought about it. Sometimes they did when they wrote a book, you know, because it's hard to write a book without having that sort of central theme around it. But what, one of the first things I would do once I figured out, you know, who they were, who they were serving is I would articulate their point of view. And sometimes they'd go, oh, my God, I never thought about it that way. Because as an outsider looking in, I can see them in a different way and theoretically see them the way that their audience might see them. And yeah, and it's a very different exercise. But I, I highly recommend it. I recommend it stay in writing. And you don't have to share it. This is not something that you have to post someplace. This is about just knowing it. Because if you start to think about, okay, I know what my revolution is. I know who I'm serving. I know my expertise. What's my point of view about using that expertise to get my people to this transformational state? And by writing it down, it will spark content. It will spark ideas. It will spark reaching out to people you might not have otherwise. It can spark alliances with people who you maybe thought were competitors, but really aren't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You do mention that it's not a marketing piece and that it's, it is. Yeah. And so as I've made my pivot from kind of traditional legal practice to a more strategic consulting one, there have been a number of kind of ideas that I landed on. And one of them was, you know, operationalizing your values. And it seems like this would be a very important tool in being able to kind of thread your values through the way you, the way you do business, you know, um, and it would show up with, you know, how you communicate with your clients, how you communicate with your team and, you know, kind of the decisions that you make about who to, you know, use as a vendor or, and things like that. So, Yeah. That makes a lot well, of... One of the things I heartily recommend to anyone with a service business is you go through a values exercise. And what I like to do is I go through the process I use gets them through to narrow it down to 10, then five, then one. And I always make it go to one because I want to force the choice. But as a marketer, as a strategist, I take the five. And those five are what I think of as, as attributes for the brand. Those are values. And those values get expressed in a variety of different ways, including the point of view. Um, the first company I started, we, um, we started a small consulting firm and my partner and I had left a big firm and we were used to what they did. And we decided, you know what, we, we don't need a fancy brochure. I mean, we didn't have the budget for that to begin with, but we're like, we don't need that. We want to be different. So we sat down and on a page, we wrote our values. And they were sentences, not single words. And we played with it for maybe a day or two until we were comfortable. And we ran that firm 
for the six years that we had it by that single page. It was the first thing we shared with our employees and contractors. When I would struggle with a decision, I'd pull it out again and look at it and say, you know, kind of what would the value statement mean? And, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't corporate speak. It was in our kind of fun, funky language. So it was very, you know, accessible and approachable. And we ran a firm that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Values are critical. Mm -hmm. And how, why do you make them go down to one? Like what, and how is that used differently than the five? When I'm doing the strategy, I want to know like, what's the overarching thing that's most important to them. And so I'll always show that as the lead attribute so that if you have to make a choice in how you phrase something or whether you decide to use you know, video or audio or writing a piece, or do you use images or not? Sometimes that one lead attribute will tell you, it will make the decision for you. But yeah, it's really, it's, it's five because nobody's really down to one value. We're not that, that simple as humans. We're much more complex. Well, thank you for starting to talk about you're the firm that you started before. Cause I think, is that the one that was sold to Arthur Anderson? Yes. Yes. So, yeah. So I'd like to talk about that. Um, you know, since, you know, part of what we do here is help people kind of go from that unsustainable hourly business to building one that is saleable and to hopefully to an exit. I'd love to hear how, um, in particular, like having a point of view kind of affected the value of your firm and affected its uh, saleability when that time came? Oh, well, it, it was everything. I mean, I like to say it added an extra zero uh, to the end of the price tag. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I want to be really clear. We did not do a lot of publishing. We didn't because we were competing against primarily three large firms. This was in Chicago, three large global firms, and they published all the time. Like you just turn around and they'd have another piece and there's no way we could compete with that. We said, you know, we don't have to, they're already writing everything that we need to do at this point. But we had, uh, the way that we structured the business was that everyone was flexibly scheduled. They had a minimum of 10 years of experience at a big firm. They had a minimum of a master's degree in an area related to their expertise. And they worked flexibly, not part-time, flexibly. We started with part-time and learned that was a bad word, but it was flexibly. So the Wall Street Journal called us refugees from the big firms. And I did not like that term at all, but I realized it really was correct. We were escaping from the 80-hour, be on a plane all week kind of work weeks to something different. So that was our niche. And while we consulted on three primary subject areas, we were known as, you know, that flexible firm. And we were mostly women. We had one man. It was mostly women. So we were also known for that. So there was this implicit authority in what we did. Um, the other thing I will tell you is we did have an exit plan when we started the business. And I think, I, I don't know that I would have done it if I hadn't had a partner, but we needed to agree on how we wanted to run and build the business. And so our exit strategy was, or at least my personal exit strategy, because we talked about maybe selling at some point. And I said, I don't want to take it public because that would not allow us to serve our clients the way that I think matters would be serving shareholders first. But I pictured myself selling out to partners. So the plan was we would grow multiple offices in multiple cities 
And we figured, okay, so one of these partners or multiple will buy me out at some point. That was kind of my exit plan. Instead, <laughs> we decided on a different exit plan, which was after roughly six years. And that was, it kind of came to us in, in a meeting. It was interesting. So we met with Arthur Anderson, who wanted to hire us to do a project related to getting women to the partnership level in the organization and keeping them there. And that was something that we were good at. And I didn't know this at the time. I found out later. But one of the two partners at that meeting turned to the other one and said, we should buy them. <laughs> did not know that. Um, but we had gotten to the point where I realized that in order for me to grow the business, I was going to have to do more of what I didn't want and less of what I loved. And I, you know, I had a lot of long nights thinking about this, but eventually decided that that was the right thing to do. And when we thought about, okay, so we want to sell, how do we initiate this conversation? I went through it was probably about a week where I decided that really there wasn't any value in this firm. Nobody was going to want to buy this. And I, the reason I'm telling this story is because I've had clients and members of some of my group programs talk about this. And don't ever on your own decide something doesn't have value. Talk to other people. So yeah, so it took me about a week to kind of get out of my head about that. And then um, we reached out to three firms and Anderson was one of them. And they quickly started the conversation because we were just the ideal firm at the ideal time. So it was not the exit strategy we had planned, um, but it worked out other than Enron, of course, that happened later, it worked out really well for Anderson and for the people inside my firm that went over. Yeah. So how did you, when you said you had an exit strategy, I know you, you had an agreement with your partner, but how did you, how did that affect the way you operated the business? Did, did, was that part of the way you kind of thought about the exit or because you thought about it being a, another partner that you'd sell to, maybe you weren't as worried about whether or not a third party who's not familiar with the, with the company could run it? Like how did it affect kind of your day-to-day -day and your SOPs it, kind of thing? It, I do think it affected my day-to-day -day. and the SOPs. That's a really, that's a really good question too. So the day-to-day -day, it did because I was always focused on growth. It was never about how can I take the most money out of the business? It was how can I invest this for the growth that I see, for the potential that I see and where we can take this firm. And in terms of SOPs, what it meant was I wanted everything to operate without needing me every five seconds. So the woman who ran our office, she had, she used to carry binders around. I loved her so much. She would have these binders and everything was a system. And so if she wasn't there, somebody else could pick up you know, the binder. And yes, it was online as well, but you pick up the binder and know what to do. So it was, it made us, made me systematize the business in ways that I wouldn't have otherwise, I think. If it was just me, I might not have done it exactly the same way. Here's an example. Uh, we had kind of three kinds of um, employees, and I use that in quotes. We had actual employees that would work for us and just for us, and they had uh, a certain set of stuff that they got, like they'd get a computer and they had healthcare and that kind of stuff. And then we had a set of contractors that would work with us 
a fair amount, but didn't want to join us as employees. And then we had some really specialized contractors. Maybe we'd only use them once a year, depending on the project. So we had some very specific criteria for what makes a consultant. I actually had a three-step process when someone would first join us, where we'd figure out, it's like a probationary period. Like these are the things that they have to do and they have to have demonstrated for us to know that this is a good investment for both parties going forward. I actually had a recruiter on staff because that was the challenge was these kinds of jobs didn't exist then. Nobody knew how to hire them. So we created this way to look for and hire people who were very high-end, aggressive, smart, but wanted to work in a different way. So we created all these things and we standardized a lot of it. In fact, that was one of the things that Anderson was interested in when they acquired us was how we did that, how we codified some of those things so that they could do it on a much bigger scale. Right. Yeah. So important. All these, all these pieces all work together, which, yeah, I love that. So one of the things I meant to ask you back, back on the writing down our points of view, like not all of us are writers. I mean, you're a writer. I'm sure that it comes very naturally to you to kind of to do this. And for, you know, I think um, I think you might have used the term manifesto in your book too to describe it. And so, and I'm like, okay, I like that. Like for for those of us who aren't writers, like, is there a shortcut or is it just you know time, thought, deep thinking, taking that space? To, to kind of form and articulate a point of view. So I'm actually going to argue it might even be easier if you're not a writer. Yeah. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but this isn't a marketing piece. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to see it. Mm-hmm. This is for you and the way you think and how your thinking applies to the people that you want to help, your ideal clients and buyers. So how you say it isn't that important other than that you get the concept down and then you can play forever with how you say it. So the way I, I go about this when I'm doing this for a client is we've talked about you know, the values, we've talked about the revolution, we've got all that and I've got the point of view. That point of view is where I get sound bites. And all sound bites are those key messages, you know, they're not more than a sentence that you sprinkle in as you talk on a podcast interview, as you Uh, write about something as you're on a video talking about an idea you've had. So it it does come back to polishing those gems, but the point of view is not about polish. It's really, I think of it as impact. It's like visceral, like this is how I get there. This is why, and it's not your personal why, but this is the why someone should kind of sign on with you for this journey to the transformation. These are your belief systems. And in a way, some of it is is the promise that you make to your ideal audience. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. It's so interesting. I'm going to listen to this again after this because I am, as we are recording this, struggling with recording what will be the first episode of this podcast, which will um, talk about kind of my why for for this podcast. And because, I mean, obviously it will be public, uh, I am struggling between the, you know, the marketing-ish bit of it versus the meaning. And um, and so this is, yeah, I'm going to go back and look at my 
<laughs> look at what I've written so far <laughs> and revisit well, it with this. Yeah, because <laughs> there's a little bit, you know, in the book, I talk about the, you know, your origin story. And that's a little bit like what you're talking about here. It's like, well, what's the origin for this podcast? You know, who do you want it to serve? How is it going to be different? Um, why are you committing to it? But it's the why in terms of the service. I always have a little trouble with this, you know, oh, start with your why. Well, start with your why, yes, so that you understand. But your audience, they only care about the part of your why that's serving them, right? So it's it's fitting that in there, but with the goal of the podcast. So it's, it's yeah, it is tricky to figure out how you want to tell that story. And sometimes it's just helpful to bounce it off on a couple of other people. Because you may have a powerful story that you've just forgotten. And it might be a very small little tie or a small little link in there that when somebody listens to it for the first time, they go, oh, this has to be on my must listen list from now on. I'm, I'm in Aaron's corner. Yeah. All right. The pressure. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no pressure. <laughs> Not at all. Well, by the time everyone listens to this, they'll know if you if you skip the first one, then go back and see what I did. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for this. I mean, as we kind of discussed, you know, part of my mission is to help create an economy that works for everyone. And so I would love it if you would share with my audience a person or an organization that has inspired you that it works with equity or economic justice. Oh, wow. It's, well, I don't know if it's economic justice, um, but Feeding America was one of my first charities. And I met with, uh, when I was living in LA, I met with the people on the ground in LA. And I was, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. I was blown away by the work that they did to make sure that food gets into the mouths of the hungry, especially the children. So that, that's probably the one that I've uh, followed and contributed to for the longest. Yeah. Well, I mean, we look at, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Like, I mean, there's no kind of next step if you're still working on feeding your children. Like that's, you know, and, and that falls on, you know, mothers a lot of times to, and, and they have to make decisions that mean that they can't perhaps pursue that degree that they want to do or, or to have the choices that they would have and work that inspires them. So that is tremendously important. And thank you for, for contributing to them as well as sharing them with, with the audience. So what is the best way for people to get more of Rochelle? Uh, we talked about your book, so let's talk about that for a second and also where people can find you. Okay, so uh, the easiest way to find me is RochelleMoulton.com and everything's there. The podcast is there. My blog is there. You can sign up if you like uh, to get regular uh, updates on uh, Building Authority. And, uh, and the book link is there, but the book is also on Amazon. Awesome. And it does have a workbook with it, which I just love because it's the way for you to not just use it as a book, but really to use it as a guide to get to this place of authority that you're looking for that combines all the things we've been talking about uh, on the show today. Yeah. The workshop, the workbook is super helpful. I also used it as uh, uh, to go along and, and tremendously important as well. So thank you again. We will put all of the details in the show notes. And I cannot thank you enough, Rochelle. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Erin. I really appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening. 
Do not forget to check out the show notes for links to connect with today's guest and for the resources, offers, and organizations that we discussed. You can also find the links at hourlytoexit.com backslash podcast. If you got value from this episode, please subscribe, and I'd be so grateful for a review. I'm here to support your journey.